in just a moment. Uh, before I do that, I wanted to uh, mention just a couple things. One, uh, I haven't got my test results back yet. So if you want to keep praying for me, I would appreciate that. Um, I hopefully will get the results back this week, um, but it could be longer. I don't really know. But I certainly will be calling this week and checking in, see if those results are in. So um, uh, let's see. Anything else to say about that? Oh, yeah. Pray, pray that um, the Lord's grace would lead me to cast myself on him. Um, I don't like waiting. You've heard me say that. And it's the same. I'm still anxious and nervous. So pray for me. I'd appreciate it. Next, uh, you might remember that together we're learning that the Bible is one big story that has four parts. And I hope that as we have continued to go through the story of Scripture, that you will recognize that, um, that there's a real unity to the Bible, that Old and New Testament is one story. And I wanted to give you this quote instead of going through our normal uh, three, four, five this week. So instead of doing that, I wanted to give you this quote. This was written, oh, I don't know, before the year 500 by a guy named Augustine. And this is what he said. I'll say it a couple times so you can write it down if you want to or think about it. Bible's one story, four parts. This is what he said. The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. The new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. So let that sink in. Think about it. Think about the unity of Scripture. Think about one story. Think about the four parts, because they will help you answer the questions of where do I come from, what in the world is wrong, what fixes it and where are we going? Is there any hope? Creation, rebellion, redemption, restoration. Remember that? Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 21 through 31. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolish, foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word. It really is a treasure uh, to have your thoughts down, written down, 
so that we can explore your mind and your heart together so that we can truly know the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We can know you through understanding these words. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that as we try to unpack this section, as we try to understand what what you're saying and what your intent is and what you mean, that you would open up our minds to, to receive it, that you would open up our hearts to receive it, that, that you would change our lives by us understanding truth. Holy Spirit, bring about conviction in our lives where we need it. Bring about encouragement. Bring about instruction. Bring about whatever it is that we need. Do that work in us with this truth. And as always, we ask that you would bring us to Christ. Enable us to hear the good news of the gospel, of what Jesus has done, who he is, and who he promises to be for us. We pray all these things, that you would be glorified. We pray these things for our good. Amen. Here's the point this morning. This is the point I want to show you from 1 Corinthians 1, 21 through 31. The four-part story is inflexibly God-centered. The four-part story is inflexibly God-centered. The four-part story is centered on God, not on man, not on us, not on human beings. The Bible is not written, the four-part story is not written so that we can be the best version of ourselves. The Bible is written to center us on God. And by finding our center in him, we will be transformed and can actually live the way that God wants us to live and be who we were created to be. So what I want to show you is that the four-part story is inflexibly God-centered. And I got two points today. The first one is this, God is God. And here's my second point. God is God. (laughs) And we're gonna work our way through this text and I wanna show it to you. So let's start with God is God. And to do that, I don't know how better to do this than to try to invite you to come with me and go all the way back, to take a trip, to go all the way back to the first century. Now, I want you to imagine that you are walking around Jerusalem. And what I want on the forefront of your mind is this. I want you to think about who you are right now. I want you to think about your education, whether you have a lot of it or whether you have none. I want you to think about your family. I want you to think about your family's name. Whether it's good, whether it's bad, or whether you have no clue. I want you to think about all of your experiences. The ones that were really important and meant something to you, and ones that have meant nothing. That were harmful, frustrating. I want you to think about all of your resources. Financial, I want you to think about your friends. I want you to think about things that you have access to or the frustration that you have because you think you don't have access to things. I want you to think about what you think is socially acceptable 
and what you think is not acceptable. I want you to have on the forefront of your mind what, may, what you may think is awkward or weird or just kind of cringy that you just, you're not sure you want anything to do with that or what you think is really awesome and attractive and important. I want you to have all that on the forefront of your mind. And I want you to see that as you're walking through Jerusalem in the first century, you're on the outskirts of town and someone says to you, do you see that man on the cross? That is the wisdom of God. Do you see that man hanging on the tree? That's the righteousness of God. I want you with all of your being, with all that you think is awkward and weird or uncomfortable or amazing, I want you to hear this person saying to you, do you see that man on the cross? That is the holiness of God. I want you to hear this voice say to you, that man on the cross, that is redemption. You notice those words are taken from what we read? 1 Corinthians 1, 30, 31. I want you to have that in your mind because Paul is talking to people that have very different ways of making sense of the world. Paul is talking to people that have very different ways of processing reality. Paul is talking to people that understand the world through different lenses. Look at verse 22. Here's the summary. Jews seek a sign, and Greeks are interested in wisdom. In other words, there are people that he's talking to that process reality in different ways, and this is actually causing problems in the church at Corinth. If you look in chapter one, verse 11, you'll find that there are these factions and divisions in the church, and there are some people who are uh, saying, well, I am of Paul, and some are saying, well, I like Peter better, and some are saying, but I love Apollos, and then someone else says, I just like Jesus. Yeah, there's always been that guy. There's always been that guy who's like, oh, I'm not interested in celebrity people, I'm just interested in Jesus. I'm not interested in the theology of what these guys are saying, I, I just want Jesus. It's so funny to read that in 1 Corinthians 1. There's always been that guy. And Paul is saying that there's friction because of how these groups process reality, how they make sense of reality. You see, the Jews have always wanted a sign. You can go back in the gospel accounts. They often come to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, uh, show us something. It has something to do with their history probably because you have, you know, like the parting of the Red Sea and the Jordan and all these amazing things that God did. And so when they engage Jesus and think about the reality of who God is and who Jesus is, they're looking for a sign. They're the kind of people that are looking for an event. They're the kind of people that say, I would be interested in your God if you just show me something. If something miraculous can be produced, I'm in. But if you can't show me anything, if there's no event that you can point to, then I'm not down with this. I'm not sure that this is, I'm not interested in this God thing at all. 
And then there were the Greeks. And they were interested in wisdom. This is how they processed reality. They weren't so much concerned about event, they wanted wisdom. And when you hear that and see it in the text, don't think of it as they wanted a short, pithy saying. That's not it. When, the Greek, when it says the Greeks want wisdom, what it means is they wanted to understand how everything works. So they wanted God. They wanted God through the Apostle Paul, if you will, to answer the ultimate questions, to make sense of all of life. They were interested in rationality. They were interested in thinking through the big questions of life. So what does it mean to actually live? So, so Paul, you gotta tell me, what, what's, why is there disease and stuff going on in the world? What's going, what is death? Is there an afterlife? What's the afterlife like? Well, how do I make decisions in my life? Uh, you see, Paul, you, 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 we're after wisdom. In other words, these are the kind of people that want to think about God and whether or not they're interested in him or not depends upon whether or not they can get their questions answered. They want to understand how life fits together and works. So Paul is addressing people who on one hand want an event. They want something, they want something of a sign. And on the other hand, he has people that want to intellectually engage and have all of their questions answered before they would really consider whether or not this God thing is true. And this is what Paul says. We preach and teach Christ and him crucified. You see, when that voice says to you, do you see that man hanging on the tree? That is wisdom. That is righteousness. That is holiness. That is redemption. What's happening is God is coming to those of us who look for events, who want signs, who wants something amazing to happen. And God's saying, you got to see the cross. That's the event. And it's from that event that wisdom comes, that explanations flow from. This is why when you read the New Testament, you get words that explain the cross. You get words and books and paragraphs that fit together to say this is what it means that Jesus died and this is what it means that he rose from the dead. This is what it means, this is how you can understand your questions of life. So that what we read this morning, the assurance of pardon, here are words that accompany and explain the event of the cross. Did you catch it this morning? God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus. You get it? So here's the event, the cross, and then there are words that explain it. So that when you look at the cross, the understanding is this. That is the moment when Jesus became sin. He was treated as a sinner. He did not sin but God treated him as if he were a sinner. Because in doing that, Jesus was taking your sin and mine and the sins of the world and the brokenness of the world and all of the darkness that we see in the world and he was paying for it. 
He was defeating it so that we would receive righteousness. So that in him, so that what Jesus did in making that payment resulted in we are treated as righteous. You see, God knows that we need event and we also need word. God knows that we need a sign. We need something that happens. And we also need words to explain that. And that's why Paul is addressing both groups of people and saying the answer is Jesus and the cross. Because God knows that we can't just have an event. Because if we just have an event, guess what? It's left up to everyone's individual interpretation. What we need is not just explanation, as if we're just rational beings that we just get to everything through rationale. Nope, that doesn't happen either. Because believe it or not, there are things that are beyond our ability to comprehend. And so rationality isn't enough. Answering our questions isn't enough. We need event. And God is saying, this is it. That Jesus is both the power of God, event, and the wisdom of God. He has answered it all. God is God. He doesn't give us everything that we want, but he always gives us exactly what we need. And that's what Paul's saying. Whether you're here and you're more of an event person, a sign person, or whether you're here and you're more of an intellectual, I need these questions answered. God's saying, I know. You might lean one way or the other, but let me tell you, you need both. And they're pictured for you at the cross and how that event is explained with words. God is God. That leads us, leads us to my second point. Do you remember what it is? God is God. Verse 26 and following. Now what Paul does is he takes the teaching that he has just laid out in 21 through 25 and he starts to press it in on us. It's as if he, he, uh, he asks us this question. Bro friends, brothers, sisters, family of God, do you remember your calling? You notice that? It's like, do you remember your calling? Have you considered your calling? Paul is trying to get us to think about the time when God summoned us, the time when God called us, the time when God drew us to himself. He's like, he's asking us, do you, do you remember that? Do you remember when God called you? Do you remember what actually was, are you self-aware enough to know what was actually happening when God called you? Do you remember what was actually going on? Because if you think back, God called people, and look at the text, um, according to world standards, uh, not many of you are that wise. Uh, not many of you are that powerful. And there's hardly any of you that have a noble birth. 
Notice Paul says that? Do, do you remember your calling? Do you remember when God called you? Uh, do you remember that he didn't do it based upon how much wisdom you have, how much power you had, or if you had some kind of noble birth? Well, what in the world was it based upon? Why would God call me? Why would God call you? Why would God say, come to me? Why would he do that? How did that happen? How would you answer that? Perhaps you might say something like this. Well, God called me because I prayed the prayer. I walked the aisle. I was baptized. I grew up in the church. My granddaddy was a pastor. God did this because I don't know, I was trying. I'm trying. Are you a follower of God or not? Well, I don't, I'm trying. Whatever, it, however you would answer that, Paul says, nope. God didn't call you because of something you were doing or trying to do. God didn't call you because you were baptized. God didn't call you because you grew up in the church. Look at what he says. Verse 27 and verse 28, he chose three times. Verse 27 and 28, God chose. See that? God didn't call you because you had noble birth, because you're powerful, because you got a lot of, because you got a lot of intellectual capability. He chose. Now you can imagine how the church might have received this, right? It's one of those things that kind of puts us in our place a little bit. I want to try to get at that by giving you a couple illustrations to think about. The first one is I ripped from a guy named Ed Clowney. And he takes this idea and he starts to apply it to a relationship like marriage. And he says, Dave, if your wife were to ask you, if Jenny were to say, do you love me? What would you say? And you know I would say yes. But if she says, why do you love me? I might say things like this. Well, because I find you attractive. Because you're intelligent. Because you work really hard. Because you have a never give up attitude. Because I like, I like those things about you. And the reality is, that means that I don't really love Jenny for Jenny. I love her for what I get out of her. Do you know the answer that she really wants to hear? I love you because I love you. Not what I get out of you. You see, what's going on here is this, if you have lived your life thinking that the only love you are worthy of or the only love that you have to live by is a conditional love. Well, I love Jenny because she's attractive. 
Well, then, I don't really love her for her. I love her for this. Uh, I love her because she's smart. I love her because she works hard. If that's the only love you've ever known, if that's what you think love is, if you've never heard anything else, then I am delighted to be the first person to tell you that there is a superior love to that. There is a superior love to conditional love, and it is unconditional love, in which God says he loves you for you. Not what he can get out of you, not what you bring to the table, not because you have noble birth, not because you have wisdom, not because you have any power, not because you pray the prayer, not because you repented, not because you grew up in the church, not because you were this, that, or the other. He loves you because he loves you. That is the love of God, which changes the world. There is no other love like this. Here's my second illustration. This is taken from a guy named uh, Robert Sproul. He was having a conversation with someone one time, and he asked, why do some follow Jesus and some not? And the person he was talking with said, well, because some believe and some don't. And he said, great. Why do they believe? And they said, well, because they were open and open-minded. Well, well, great, he said. Well, why were they open-minded? Why were they open? Well, because they were willing to humble themselves and others aren't. Well, well great. Well, why did they humble themselves? Well, I, I guess they were just willing. Well, great. Why were they willing? Do I need to keep going? <laughs> At some point, you have to think about why in the world do you believe? At some point, you have to think about, at your core, do you think that you are just a little bit better than someone else? I was just more willing. I was just more open. You hear that? Just a little bit better than other people. And the point that's being made is this. If you think that your relationship with God is based on something that you have done, then you probably have to come to grips with this, that you think you're just a little bit better than other people. And that way of thinking perpetuates our pride. It leads to us thinking that there is an us versus them and oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes it leads to this view of the world in which we just think that we have to fight everything in the culture. And Paul is telling us, God chose. He decided to love you because he decided to love you. And if that's really hard for you to take in, quick sidebar, that's really hard for you to take in. If you've never heard of that before, you might immediately have all kinds of questions. Well, if this is true, then 
Um, what does that mean about God's relationship to evil? Ask it. If you're thinking, well, this doesn't sound fair, ask it. If you think, well, this view leads to not caring about other people and not wanting to do mission work, ask it. If it leads you to think, um, well, this just promotes laziness and inactivity and not doing anything, not serving, not obedience, ask it. Because I need you to understand all of those questions have answers. And they've been around for more than a thousand years. So if this idea that God chooses immediately leads you back into thinking, I'm a system guy, I need to have all my questions answered. If you're that Greek mindset, that you're looking for wisdom and understanding, ask it, pursue it, think about it, wrestle with it. Well, if this is true, what does it mean for free will? Ask. There are answers everywhere for hundreds and hundreds of years. Because if you don't, you might end up just perpetuating that pride in your life in which you really live in a way that just says, I just think I'm a little bit better than everyone else. Or this disposition of, you know, life is really us versus them, in which you're predominantly frustrated and angry about everything. Paul is saying to this church, he's saying to people that learn differently, no, you forget God. You've forgotten who God is. You've forgotten that he loves you, Corinthian church, Christ prayers, because he loves you, not for what he can get out of you. And if you understand the grace of God and the gospel of what Jesus as a literal savior has actually done, then it means this. Look at verse 29 and verse 31. There will be no boasting. We cannot boast in ourselves before God. You see it? To understand that God loves us not for what he can get out of us, but he loves us because he loves us means that we cannot boast in ourselves, but we get to boast in God in all that God has done, in all that he is. And if you're wondering, well, well, how in the world do I know if I'm chosen? Here it is. You know that you're chosen if when you look at the cross and you see Jesus, you think to yourself, that is my wisdom. That is is my righteousness, that is my holiness, that is my redemption. So to look at the cross and see Jesus means that he is my wisdom, that Jesus is the one that helps me interpret all of reality. He tells me where I came from. He tells me about the brokenness of the world that he's paying for, that I've contributed to. He's taking my sin. And he tells me that he gives me a righteousness and a victory. And he tells me he's coming back. He's my wisdom. And he's my righteousness. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with what he has accomplished. That he is holiness that I wanna be like him, seeking his kingdom like he was, 
seeking the kingdom of God, being inflexibly committed to the glory of God, that he is my holiness. All that I am is bound up in him and he is my redemption. That he's done everything for me. He's done it all. You see, God is God. And when we come to him, we come to him on his terms. So let's go back to our little trip through Jerusalem. Remember that voice saying that? That is God's wisdom and righteousness and holiness and redemption? Let's make that real clear. For those of you that are super competitive, that was the greatest victory ever. Those of you that are teachers, that on Jesus on the cross is the greatest lesson ever. Those of you that struggle with just thinking everything is transactional, that on the cross was the greatest transaction ever. Those of you that are all locked up about money and care about it and think about it all the time, either because you're so frugal or it's your identity, that, Jesus on the cross, was the most costly thing ever. Those of you that are lawyers, that is the greatest advocate ever. Those of you that are doctors, that is the greatest physician who has ever lived. Those of you that feel like you are weighed down and just cursed, that was the greatest curse ever absorbed. Those of you that are dying for blessing and hope, that is your greatest hope. And friends, this is what brings us to the table, isn't it? We get to celebrate this, that God is God, and by his grace we can be inflexibly committed to that. On the night that